I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, humility did not come naturally. My instincts were to be full of pride. Here's a few examples. I got in countless numbers of fights on the school playground, yet I didn't start a single one of them. And why is that? It's because I was so arrogant that I ticked people off and all they wanted to do was punch me. My third grade teacher said I was the bossiest kid she'd ever known. I played a lot of basketball and I became pretty good at it. In fact, I was the best one-on-one player in our circle. Ooh, that's, that's not a very humble comment, is it? <laughs> it keeps creeping up. Now, since I was good at basketball, I thought I should be good at every sport. You see, that's a mistake prideful people often make. We think because we excel at one thing that then we can automatically excel at other things. And I got a painful lesson in the reality that that wasn't true one day when my father took me out to teach me how to play tennis. (coughs) Excuse me. And so, like a beginner, I whiffed. I hit a lot of serves into the net. A lot of my shots went wide of the court and more. And how did I respond to that very natural experience? Not with maturity. I ranted, I raved, I screamed, I even threw my racket in anger. You see, I wasn't humble enough to be a good learner. During my teen years, it was common for me to spout off my opinions on all kinds of topics. And in any argument, it was extremely important to me to have the last word. As you can imagine, a lot of people found that quality in me extremely irritating. Now, those examples are not a complete picture of me. Not by a long shot. But they are a picture of me at some of my worst moments, moments when I yielded to pride. And when I yielded to pride, who paid the price? Everyone. Me, my friends, my family. Because pride always is so destructive. My parents worked hard to try to teach me how to embrace humility, but only with limited success. And things really didn't change much until I became a follower of Jesus Christ at age 17. And it was then, when I began to submit my life to God, that I really started to understand the depths of the problem of pride. And I began a lifelong journey to try to cultivate and embrace Christ-like humility. The very first Bible book I read as a new believer was the book of Romans. And it was in Romans chapter 12 that the Apostle Paul, my older brother in the faith, taught me some wonderful things about humility, some vital lessons about how pride can be broken by embracing humility. And in Romans 12, Paul describes a way that we can embrace humility which transforms us and which transforms our relationships with each other. That's where we want to turn our attention this morning. We want to see what we can learn from Paul about how to experience more humility in our lives and therefore more humility 
within our relationships. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is describing here a process of humbling ourselves before God. He's telling us this is where humility begins. It begins when we submit to God. And the motivation for submitting to God is mercy. God's mercy. God's mercy toward us. The mercy of our Creator is an incredible display of His humility because He chooses not to insist on justice for our continual acts of rebellion. The fact is that we sin by embracing attitudes and actions that hurt us and hurt others and prevent us from experiencing the best that God has for us. If God were prideful, he could just snuff us out of existence. After all, why should a creator put up with and waste time on rebellious creatures? Yet God in the person of Jesus left behind the glories of heaven. He lived as a man and sacrificed himself on a cross so that we could be forgiven so that we would have the opportunity to experience the mercy of God. In light of this, Paul says the most sensible thing we can do is to humbly offer ourselves to the God who humbly offered himself for us. And Paul gives us two specific ways in which we can take action to humble ourselves. We can offer God our bodies and we can offer God our mind. In other words, we give him our entire selves. And to become aware of the fact that the way I eat and the way I exercise and the way I express my sexuality and the things that I read and watch and think about, all of these things affect and reflect who I am. And here's the key question. In all of this, who's running the show? Me or God? You see, in every area of life, we face a choice. I can choose to pridefully stand apart from God and run things on my own. Or I can offer myself to God so that I can know and live out His good and pleasing and perfect will. In other words, I can choose to walk humbly with God and then I can experience the best that He has for me. And that's true for each of us. Yet none of this is, is, is natural behavior. It's learned behavior. And that's why we need to embrace the advice of Paul here. <clears throat> the way forward is to offer ourselves to God so that he can do his work of renewal in our bodies and in our minds. Especially in our minds. And we need to understand that a renewed mind is not one that simply has acquired new information. A renewed mind is one that's learning to think differently. 
to analyze differently. To make decisions based on God's wisdom rather than the wisdom of the culture in which we live. Because our culture so often is unwise and will deceive us. For example, just think about how often our culture encourages us to make moral decisions through the lens of money. My wife and I have experienced this firsthand. When we first got engaged, we faced a lot of cultural pressure from friends to live together before we got married. Lots of our friends were doing that. And here's what's fascinating to me. Their rationale, their rationale was, you'll save money. Instead of renting two apartments, you can only rent one. And they took a very complex, vital, life-altering decision and reduced it down to finances. For me and Julie, though, it wasn't a question of finances. It was a question of values, a question of morals. And we believed it was wrong. And so for us, money never was part of the conversation. And, and therefore, we didn't care that it cost us more to do what we believed was right. Now, we only could make that decision because at least in this area of life, we'd submitted ourselves to a process where our minds were being transformed. And we increasingly were learning to think biblically, not culturally. And this equipped us to make what for us was a countercultural choice. Because above all things, we were trying to humble ourselves before God. And as we did so, we were able to embrace God's will for us and experience the best that he had for us. And looking back on that, all these years later, neither of us ever regret waiting for marriage before fully sharing our life together. Now, I recognize that the world's changed a lot since Julie and I got engaged. I recognize that today, living together is virtually automatic for so many people. And I understand that because people aren't encouraged to actually even think about it or question it. Our culture has simply normalized it. And my encouragement is that with this kind of decision or any significant decision in life, that we don't do it simply because our culture says it's normal. Instead, let's strive to think about things from God's perspective and see what He might prompt us to do. And as God renews our minds, we gain the wisdom that we need to not blindly follow the culture. And then we're far more likely to make decisions that help us experience the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So I believe that the best thing you and I can do is allow God to transform our minds and our hearts and our lives. And we begin this process of transformation when we humble ourselves before Him. And As we humble ourselves before Him, we're acknowledging that we don't always do the best job of managing our own lives. And as we increasingly embrace humility before God, then he equips us and prepares us to experience humility with each other in our life together. And that's what Paul writes about next. Verse 3. 
For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these, do, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, I think we often have a very narrow definition of humility, and we think, oh, I'm being humble if I'm just not bragging or boasting. And that, Now, that's certainly true, but Paul's definition here is much broader and deeper. And in fact, he views humility as an expression of our faith. You see, if I think too highly of myself, which Paul warns against here in verse 3, it means that I have more faith in me than I do in God. And that's a sign of pride, and pride always has an adverse effect upon relationships. And so Paul offers some concrete advice here to help us experience real Christ-like humility in our life together. And the first thing he does here in verses 4 and 5 is he describes the community of faith as a diverse group of people. And in fact, he tells us that we, we here in the church, we are as diverse as the parts of the human body. I, I don't know if you ever took physiology or anatomy in school. I vividly remember taking that class back in high school, and I was amazed at the differences between the various parts of the human body. The human eye looks nothing like a kneecap. A calf muscle looks nothing like a blood vessel. And in fact, if we were to see those kinds of body parts randomly lying on the street, we would not automatically know that they go together unless we already had a working knowledge of human anatomy. Because at first glance, they don't fit. And Paul says, it's the same for us. We who are part of this very distinctive community called the Church of Jesus Christ. And Paul's observation is true because at first glance, many of us don't naturally fit together. And that's because we have different, different careers and different passions and different hobbies and different interests we have different skin colors. We were born in different states, and some of us weren't even born in the United States. We don't all share the same political outlook, and we don't all vote the same way. Some of us don't speak English as our native language. You see, none of us is exactly like the other. We're different, but we go together. And we're also diverse in spiritual ways because the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people in the church as Paul describes here in verses 6 to 8. And he's not giving us a complete list, just a representative one, but it's clear that no one person has all the gifts. So in spiritual ways, just like in human ways, 
No one is exactly like the other. Yet we still all fit together. By the way, as I described all that, I deliberately used plural pronouns. And I did so because this is not a description of me, and it's not a description of you. It's a description of us. We're in this together. And by using that language, I'm owning the fact that we are together as a community. This is all about us. And what Paul wants us to recognize is that us is diverse. And when it comes to the diversity of the family of God, we face a challenge. We face a question. Will we actually embrace this or will we run away from it? And it's tempting to run away from it because diversity is messy. We like conformity a whole lot better. Because life is so much easier when everybody looks like me and dresses like me and talks like me and thinks like me and shares my passions and preferences and interests. Yet our instinctive desire for conformity flies in the face of Paul's exhortation to be humble. And you see, if I insist that other people be like me, then I'm falling into the trap of thinking too highly of myself. I'm expecting my personal preferences and my particular viewpoints to outweigh those of other people. And what Paul wants us to see is this. The very nature of Christian community is an invitation to a life of humility. This community called the church, it's our experience to experience the richness of community. It is an opportunity to experience the richness of community by laying aside our pride and humbly embracing the very different kinds of people in our midst. Now this kind of Community never is easy to forge, but it's even harder to do today because we live in a time of angry polarization when our culture once again lies to us and teaches us to think of anyone who disagrees with us as the enemy. And too many people today only will be friends with those who agree with them. Too many people only will love those whose lifestyles they approve of. And here's the real tragedy in my view. People who adopt that viewpoint, people who draw those harsh lines, they believe they're displaying virtue, but I think they're just displaying pride in another wrapper. Paul shows us a better way. He shows us a better way because he's a follower of Jesus, not a follower of culture. And he wants us to engage this community of different kinds of people because, as he says in verse 5, we belong to each other. We belong to each other. Now, that's a high level of commitment. Many people find that scary, and I believe they find it scary not because it's a bad thing, but because it threatens our independence. <laughs> you see, so often we like to hold back. We like to be a little bit aloof. 
And yet if we take Paul at his word, we belong to each other. And when we belong to each other, we cannot live together in independence. Our relationships are redefined as interdependent and even dependent. Now, what does a prideful person do with that? A prideful person is going to resist and hold back. A prideful person won't fully enter into community because community requires vulnerability and vulnerability requires humility. A prideful person won't submit to the teaching of another individual because it's humbling to put ourselves in the role of a learner. A prideful person will misuse his or her spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves rather than try to just build up the community. And I want you to listen carefully to this one. A prideful person will find it very hard to be on the receiving end when another believer uses their spiritual gifts to bless them. They'll find it hard to receive because pride says, I need to be self-sufficient and I shouldn't need your help, your gift, whatever it is you're offering me. For all of these reasons and so many more, pride is so destructive to relationships. It's so destructive to community. And that's why humility is what Paul points us toward because humility fosters a much more healthy community. And through humility, we learn to value the different opinions and perspectives and preferences and gifts of others as well as our own. And as we do that, we enlarge our understanding of who our God is and how he can work in the lives of his people and how he works through his people. And as we increasingly let God take away our pride, and as we increasingly become a community shaped by humility, then we all increasingly experience the very best that God has for us. It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. I've been working on it my whole life. It's a process that begins when we offer ourselves to God. That's how we start to embrace humility. And then we can experience humility through the healthy give and take of Christian community by choosing not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And if a community of believers gets to that point, it is a good thing. It's a great thing. Yet Paul isn't content to stop there. He takes humility to an even higher level. And in fact, he describes how we can express humility in a distinctive way that truly reflects the character of Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Let's just camp on those last words for a minute. Honor one another above yourselves. That's actually different than what he's been saying so far. You see, it's one thing for me to say, okay, I won't think too highly of myself and I'll consider the needs of others as well as my own. In fact, I'll value the spiritual gifts of others as well as my own. But it's another thing entirely to express humility by honoring others above me. And it's fair to ask, is this even possible? 
How do we do that? What might that actually look like? Author John Dixon wrote a book about humility. And here's how he describes Christ-like humility. We make the noble choice to deploy our resources or to use our influence or even to forego our status for the good of others before benefiting ourselves. We willingly hold our power in the service of others. Now, where do we see an example of this? We find it in Jesus. This is the humility that he continually demonstrated. He chose to forego his status so he could use his resources and his influence for others. He held his power in the service of us. And he displayed this kind of humility throughout his life. It was this kind of humility that enabled him to go to the cross so that we could receive the mercy of God. Now, having said that, here's where we often trip ourselves up. Whenever we hold up Jesus as an example, and as a role model, we sometimes get uncomfortable with what we perceive that God might be asking us to do. It might seem too hard, too difficult, too uncomfortable, or maybe we just simply don't want to do it. And then we fall back on the excuse that we can't follow his example. And so we say things like this to ourselves or to each other. Well, of course Jesus could express that kind of humility. He's Jesus. He's God. But I could never do anything like that. The answer is yes, we actually can. You and I always can choose to hold our power in the service of others. And if we're paying attention the circumstances of life will give us ample opportunities to express humility in just this way. Late one night in Detroit, Michigan in the 1930s, a young man was riding the bus home. He was sitting at the back of the bus all alone, and then three other young men got on the bus, and they spied him, and they decided to harass him. They began by hollering verbal insults at him. He just sat quietly without responding. Their insults got more loud, more rude, more vicious. He said nothing. They challenged him to a fight. He ignored them. He simply sat there and took it until the bus finally arrived at his stop. And then, when the bus came to a halt, he stood up. And all of a sudden, his antagonists realized he was much bigger than they had thought. <laughs> the bulk of his body and his muscles had been hidden by the high, high seat backs of the bus. And that lone man walked up to them. And he looked at these three bullies in the eye. He didn't say a word. He handed them a simple business card. And then he walked off the bus. In astonishment, the three young men looked down at the business card and they read these words. Joe Lewis, boxer. 
Those three men had just tried to pick a fight with a man who very soon after that was going to become the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. <laughs> now, if you know anything of Joe Lewis, you know that this was his reputation. It was said that he could hit so hard that he could knock out a horse with one blow. Obviously then, when he was mocked by some thugs on a bus, he easily could have defended his honor by physically retaliating. Instead, he chose to forego his status. He chose to honor them above himself, even though they didn't deserve it. He was willing to hold his power in the service of others. And that night, he served three lucky young men who otherwise might have ended up in the hospital. Now, I'm sure that Joe Lewis did not feel love toward those men, but his actions were loving. His actions were merciful. And I don't know if Joe Lewis was a Christian, but that night he displayed Christ-like humility. The reality is a prideful person never could have done what he did in that moment, but he chose to be humble. And humble people always have the power to hold back. As I said at the beginning of this message, the book of Romans and this particular passage, some of the very first Bible passages I ever explored as a new believer. And I like to revisit Romans 12 from time to time because it reminds me how to keep my life heading in the right direction. It reminds me that humility is God's antidote to pride. Now, I believe that a passage like this is an invitation to take a spiritual inventory. And so I want to suggest that this week you pray and ask God's Spirit to search your mind and your heart and your life. Ask Him to show you any place where pride is intruding into your relationships. And then make a renewed commitment to embrace and experience and express humility. Make a renewed commitment to hold your power in the service of others so that you can be a blessing to them as a representative of Jesus Christ.